early Stoicism, but later Stoicism, as exemplified by Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, was almost exclusively devoted to the ethical question of how to live, though this aspect of Stoicism was present from the outset. In their physics, the Stoics committed to the view... Is that too fast? ...that the signature of reality is the capacity to act or be acted upon, and they therefore said that the only things that exist are physical bodies. It does. The physicist is an actor be acting upon the only thing that exists is physical bodies. Now, you would say there is no physical bodies, but then at the same time, that's based around your assumption that quarks are real things. And maybe, they're, you know, and that's something, they're not just archetypes. And maybe what's most real is the archetypes of these bodies, and, and it's just projections and the idea of like quarks and energy and all that. That's just an archetype itself. And maybe the bodies are the most real. Like, any thoughts? possible in, in that way it still is is transcending the self because we're still just uh, an expression or, or or a manifestation of the world of forms which is non-material right and i would say that that might be more accurate because you get you get too caught up in the idea of like energy and ephemerality yeah okay may, maybe that's true in a metaphorical sense and in, in the dream world it's pointing you to that deeper symbolic truth but still the, the idea of quarks and leptons they just fit the quadrant pattern it's just really just a quadrant manifestation what's real is a quadrant and in this world, maybe the bodies are as real as the idea of just everything's energy. Like, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. Matter, therefore, is a fundamental principle, archi, of the universe. But they pointed out that we also refer to many other things that are not bodies. For example, places, times, and imaginary objects, such as mythical beasts. These things do not exist, but subsist. That is, have a kind of courtesy semi-existence, because they can be talked about. Unlike Plato, who held that universals really exist, albeit in a realm of being accessible only to the intellect, they described these objects of reference as mental entities only, much as did the nominalists of later philosophy. The archi, matter, is indestructible and eternal. But there is another fundamental principle of the universe alongside matter, also indestructible and eternal. This is logos, reason. It pervades and organizes the universe, making it go through a cycle of changes, beginning with fire, passing through the formation of the elements, fire, air, water, and earth, the first two active and the latter two passive. Thence on to the emergence of the world as we know it, constituted by combinations of these elements, and thence back again to the universal fire, which begins the cycle over again. In a it does. Yeah, what's the universal fire? Yeah, well, it's four elements, fire, earth, air, and water, which is a quadrant, you know, and maybe that's the only reason why there is a fire, but yeah, what were you saying? You would say that's energy, right? No. No. Eternal recurrence. Yeah, does it? This logos, this logos also called fate and God, and it is a material thing, yeah. like the of changes beginning with fire, passing through the formation of the elements, fire, air, water, and earth, the first two active and the latter two passive. Thence on to the emergence of the world as we know it, constituted by combinations of these elements, and thence back again to the universal fire, which begins the cycle over it does. No, that's interesting. again in eternal recurrence. This logos, the Stoics also called fate and God, and it is a material thing, like the physical universe which it orders through these endlessly repeating cycles. The Stoics held that the universe is a plenum of matter, meaning that there is no empty space. This raises the question of how things can be individuated, told apart externally, and how they can maintain themselves internally as individual things. 
The answer is that they are kept apart as different individuals and kept together internally, each as a single individual, by pneuma, or breath, which is a combination of fire and air. Pneuma penetrates all things, and because it comes in different grades, it is the cause of things having different properties. It is what gives plants and animals their respective kinds of life, and it is what gives reason to humans. Essentially, that idea of breath we saw in the Bible, too. It is unclear whether this view committed the Stoics to thinking that, because pneuma is physical stuff, its role as the rational part of a human being cannot survive a bodily dissolution at death. Chrysippus said that the pneuma of the wise would survive the death of their associated bodies until the next fiery conflagration, perhaps because the pneuma of the wise has greater self-integrating power than that of the unwise, but the view smacks of compromise. Logic was a broad topic for the Stoics, including not just reason and its science, but also epistemology and philosophical. I wanted to ask some, uh, uh, some questions though, really quick though, too. I forgot to say it. Um, when was, you know, the idea of like, you know, we want to look at environment and not biology, right? I mean, you can't do anything about biology, but you can do stuff about environment, right? the environment or you can you can be agents of its uh, flow yeah it doesn't no I guess you can pollute the biology too I guess yeah yeah but, but what I'm saying is like you can't do anything about like the IQ and you know what the genetics and everything but you can do stuff about the environment right right am, am I right Uh, I can barely hear you. What's wrong with the thing? Sorry. I don't know. But uh, so, I was, uh, so I was gonna ask then. You know, so 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 we like the differences between blacks and whites. That's more due to environment and culture, right? As opposed to biology, right? Well, yeah, the culture in the sense of the the, the frame of reference, the the water in which you float your boat. The way of thinking, the yeah. way of seeing and yeah. thinking. Yeah, it doesn't. No. And that has to do more with environment, right? Than than biology, right? Exactly. So so, but then, but I was gonna ask, so like, okay, what about homosexuality though? How are we gonna supposed to look at that? Is that are we gonna say, okay, they're mainly homosexuals because of environment as opposed to biology? It does. Well, see, I don't think there is such a thing as homosexuals. There, there are people. See, that's all a part of a, an, an emerging phenomena of emerging out of finding our identity in our plumbing and our yeah. sexual preferences. Yeah. See, we've, we've, we're, we're outgrowing that 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 consensus reality. Yeah, the idea, the idea. I'm a homosexual because I'm a man and I like other men. Well, that's assuming that there's men and there's other men. And you're identifying with the body. Yeah, it, it, identifying with the body and, and identifying with your emotions and your 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 self confirmation. Self confirmation. No, I'm not gay. I, I, I'm not gay. I'm just I just said that you know as a, as an example, but I'm not at all. But it doesn't. 
Yeah, so so yeah, so so you're saying okay, you don't identify with the, with your desires and, and your proclivities and stuff like that. So and it's true, homosexuality is a social construction because you know like Michelangelo had homosexual sex apparently, but he was didn't wasn't considered homosexual because back then that was just seen as normal. You know, every once in a while a man would have homosexual sex. You know, back then, like any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it's true. So I mean, like this identity major it's the same thing like identifying as black that's more of a modern construction kind of like that identifying as homosexual it's a modern construction any thoughts no so so you would say it's it's the, the differences between homosexuals and heterosexuals probably more environmental cultural right well there certain there certainly are effeminate char- characteristics or personality styles um I'm not I, I don't I wouldn't say that that's strictly environmental yeah well I mean yeah and the same thing with like you know black and white there, there, there might be some different personality styles that you might see sometimes but not all the cases and we look at people as individuals too so I mean some homosexuals completely masculine no some yep. of them you know and, and some of them are very promiscuous maybe some of them are not promiscuous at all some heterosexuals are very promiscuous some are not but but the but to label someone a homosexual and think that you understand a lot about him is kind of missing the point because you're not looking at him as an individual, right? Any thoughts? Exactly. And also, it's sort of like but, different personality traits. I don't know. Maybe more NFs. I don't know if that's true. I have to look into that. But any thoughts? Yeah, that's certainly possible. Um. And also, like you know, like what about like alcoholism? You know, people talk about it being genetic and stuff, but, you know, we, we try to stray away from looking at things as genetic and biological because then you resign to that, right? But at the same time, we were listening to that thing where they're saying that we should embrace this idea of genetic because then we understand that it's a disease and we don't have any – and it's not our fault. Like, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it, it's certainly very clear that, that some people are more uh, – uh, uh, alcohol is more toxic to some people than it is to others. And I think that's more biological than cultural. And why is it good to embrace that aspect? Well, just that, that we do have, we are different. We are not equal. We are not the same. But at the same time, you would say, okay, you could acknowledge that. And then, so then, then it's like not your fault. You don't have to blame yourself. It does, that's not self-confirmatory, right? But then at the same time, though, you don't... You don't need to blame yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah, you neither blame yourself, nor do you um, sur- uh, 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 surrender or get, be resigned to your proclivities, your biological pro- proclivities. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like Grandma is, is very, very allergic to vodka. I mean, if she drinks a... Uh, a shot of vodka, she, she 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 just reacts, and so she she just chooses to stay away from it. Yeah. Any other thoughts? No. So we would we would look at it more as environmental than biological, but probably the same thing with alcoholism. Though, like I, people would say, "Oh, it's genetic," but I'm sure a ton of it is actually environmental, like how you were brought up, you know, your your the 
the supporting your support network of your environment and all that stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of aspects like that. And those are things that you can really take account for and that you could actually change. Whereas like your genes, you can't really change that. Right. Any thoughts? See, I'm I'm ninety five percent or ninety nine percent sure that Amos would not have had a tr- trouble with alcohol had we not moved to Long Beach, where he was immediately uh, surrounded by a bunch of guys his age that were all partying, and he didn't have that. It was a totally different environment in Anaheim. Yeah, and then what about the idea like if if it's something's destiny, then you can't take personal credit. for sure if, 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 if there's a preordained destiny you see you see you didn't like the idea of destiny because you were thinking that i was saying that oh it's biologically determined but that's not what i was saying i was saying that even even though like somebody can be you know in the in the flow and not you know thinking he's superior and not resigning to genetics and biology and stuff it's determined that he would do that because everything's determined by the quadrant but you know but it doesn't mean to resign to it no it's that it's determined the person who who got in the flow because he didn't resign to his biology and stuff. It's, it's determined, you know, all that stuff. Even, you know, any, any thoughts? Because the idea is Hashem controls everything. The, the quadrant controls everything. Even even the stuff that seems, you know, even, even that stuff where, you know, the person has the choice to do, even that is known. Because it ultimately, and, and I think that that's the ultimate way that you take get rid of personal credit. Because you recognize, listen, everything is, is the quadrant. The quadrant is controlling this. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I would not. I would not surrender to that assumption, but it may be true. Yeah, well, I think it's true, but yeah, if, if you're smart, you're not gonna be like, oh, everything's a quadrant, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be depressed. No, you could be a fucking dumbass and do that, but, but I would say, if anything, it's like the Calvinists. They they believe everything's everything is determined by God, but still, they they work hard and stuff. You know, it, it actually might make you work even harder because now you're not, there's like no pressure. Like, and, and they want to show that they are the, the chosen. Like, any thoughts? Yeah. All right. Their contributions to logic, strictly so-called, were significant, unlike Aristotle propositions, and identified three basic rules of inference. Actually, they thought there were five, but three of them are the same rule written three different ways which are familiar and central in today's propositional calculus. An interesting feature of their logic is that it is committed to... Propositional calculus is all based on quadrants, but yeah. ...strict bivalence. That is the principle that there are two and only two true... ...values, namely true and false, and that every assertion must be one or the other. Aristotle had wrestled with the question whether this must be so by contemplating a proposition about the future. There will be a sea battle tomorrow. Is this now definitely either true or false? If it is either, there must now be a fact about the future. But the future does not exist, so how can there be a fact about it? Hey, thus. Not yet. Aristotle therefore decided that the proposition is neither true nor false. Bivalence does not, he said, apply to future tensed propositions about contingent matters. Chrysippus, however, thought that all statements, even future tensed ones, must be definitely either true or false. And this therefore committed him to strict determinism. If there will be a sea battle tomorrow is now either true or false, it is now already settled that there will or will not be a sea battle tomorrow. 
In asserting the Stoic metaphysical principle that Logos as fate drives the universe through its repeating cycles of history, he is to be taken quite literally. This view brought the Stoics into conflict. The Academy, Plato's school, which had by this time been converted to skepticism. The Stoics argued that the criterion of a belief's truth is whether or not the experience that gives rise to it is caused in one's mind by the thing itself. As they put it, truth consists in the fantasia cataleptica, or cognitive impression, being stamped and impressed on one's mind in accordance with the very thing itself, and is such that it could not arise from what is not. The skeptics pointed out that no impression arising from something true is such that an impression arising from something false could not be just like it. It does. Pretty complicated. I didn't follow all that logic. All right. Well, let's listen to this thing on on Da Vinci, Isaacson. He he talks a little bit about homosexuality. See, see what you think. Ready? Okay. Because again, I guess uh, Leonardo Da Vinci did a little homosexual stuff. Or and comedy was beloved by Leonardo. Any thoughts on that? No. And illustrated by Botticelli, consigned sodomites along with blasphemers and usurers to the seventh circle of hell. However. Dante displayed Florence's conflicted feelings about homosexuals by praising in the poem one of the denizens he put into this circle, his own mentor, Brunetto Latini. Some writers, following Freud's unsubstantiated assertions that Leonardo's passive homosexual desires were sublimated, have speculated that his desires were repressed and channeled into his work. One of his maxims seems to give support to the theory that he believed in controlling his sexual urges. Whoever does not curb lustful desires puts himself on the level of beasts. But there is no reason to... He does? Well... I don't know that you put yourself on the level of beast, but you're, you put yourself on the level of being driven by your... by your... sexual proclivities. Yeah. Yeah, does it? No. believe that he remains celibate. Those who wish, in the interest of morality, to reduce Leonardo, that inexhaustible source of creative power, to a neutral or sexless agency, have a strange idea of doing service to his reputation. What do you think about uh, Freud's idea of, like, sub sublimated and everything? Any thoughts? Well... <laughs> see, I, I, I don't know. See, see, that's more of a cause-and-effect thing. I'm not sure that that... It's true, but it may be. Well, I mean, like, you know, some people make, you know, they, they used to say, like, you know, schizophrenia doesn't come from genes so much as it comes from bad mothers. And I can, you know, we, we do know that that environment does have an effect on schizophrenia. Like, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no doubt about that. And, and, like, you know, people would say the same thing about homosexuality. They thought it was the way that the person was raised. And, and I don't want to deny that. Maybe, maybe the environment is more critical than the biology in that sense. I don't know. Now, people don't like that because then, then they say, oh, then you blame the mothers and stuff. But, okay. Well, you know what? You're either blaming the mothers or you're blaming the boy. What do you want to do? It could be both, like any thoughts. Or you can blame. You don't, you don't need to blame either. Then what do you do? Well, you just acknowledge it is what it is and it ain't what it ain't. And you invite the person to uh, what Freud, Freud would call sublimated or invite the person to... Uh, commit themselves to some other project in life rather than being uh, run by their their impulses. Yeah, upgrade their software? Yeah. 
wrote Kenneth Clark. On the contrary, in his life and in his notebooks, there is much evidence that he was not ashamed of his sexual desires. Instead, he seemed amused by them. In a section of his notebooks called On the Penis, he described quite humorously how the penis had a mind of its own and acted at times without the will of the man. The penis sometimes displays an intellect of its own. When a man may desire it to be stimulated, it remains obstinate and goes its own way, sometimes moving on its own without the permission of its owner. It does. Well, yeah, you can be you can be led around by the tingling in your penis. You can be if you want. <laughs> Whether he is awake, but also it's not always tingling by itself. Like a lot of times, it has something to do with what your thoughts are at the time, right? Like any thoughts. Or sleeping, it does what it desires. Often. But the question is, how much control do you have of your thoughts? Like, you know, are we programmed to be having sex? And, and maybe that's not just a genetic Darwinian thing, but maybe that's a part of, you know, the archetypal nature of reality of the man wanting to unite with the woman to retain oneness. And maybe that's an elemental aspect of existence. Like, any thoughts? Yeah, there's no doubt about it that that's a phenomenon. The man wishes to use it, it desires otherwise. And often it wishes to be used, and the man forbids it. Therefore, it appears that this creature possesses a life and an intelligence separate from the man. He found it curious that the penis was often a source of shame, and that men were shy about discussing it. Man is wrong to be ashamed of giving it a name or showing it, he added, always covering and concealing something that deserves to be adorned and displayed with ceremony. How was this reflected in his art? In his drawings and notebook sketches, he showed a far greater fascination for the male body than the female. His drawings of male nudes tend to be works of tender beauty, many rendered in full length. By contrast, almost all of the women he painted, with the exception of a now lost Leda and the Swan, are clothed and shown from the waist up. Nevertheless, unlike Michelangelo, Leonardo was a master at painting women. From Ginevra de Benci to the Mona Lisa, his portrait... It does. No. ...of women are deeply sympathetic and psychologically insightful. His Ginevra is innovative at least for Italy, by ushering in a three-quarter view for women's poses rather than the full profile. I mean, one thing I find interesting is, like, I never... I mean, maybe I was good at dancing when I was young. It was just, like, automatic. I remember I was, actually. People said I was, like, a good dancer and stuff, but I didn't even know what I was doing. But, like, now I'm not. But, like, if you look at gay people, quote-unquote, sometimes, like, a lot of them are just, like, very good at dancing. Like, you see them, like, moving around like women. Like, and why is it that women and gay people, like, dance good? Like, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have any thoughts about that. But that's that's certainly an observable, demonstrable phenomenon. Yeah. Well, that was standard. This allows viewers to look at the eyes of the woman, which, as Leonardo declared, are the window of the soul. With Ginevra, women were no longer presented as passive mannequins, but were shown as people with their own thoughts and emotions. On a deeper level, Leonardo's homosexuality seems to have been manifest in his sense of himself as somewhat different, an outsider who didn't quite fit in. By the time he was 30, his increasingly successful father was an establishment insider and legal advisor to the Medici. The top guilds... It does? No. I want to check out this one, too. This is uh, by uh, Richie Robertson. It's on the Enlightenment. Ready? After the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Romans. Chapter 7, verses 22. And vanity. What, what, do you, what do you think about that quote? Any thoughts? No. Not yet. This classical contrast between reason and passion 
often implied a further contrast between the mind and the body. What do you think about the idea that reason and passion and mind and body? Any thoughts there? Say that again. What do you think about that? The, the, the reason versus passion, mind versus body. Like any thoughts there? Reason is one step beyond being run by your body and its impulses and instincts, but intuition and inspiration is one step toward beyond reason and intellect. Well, I mean, there's there's that song. My mind's telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yeah. And it doesn't. It's always a, that's always operative. Our, our instincts, impulses, and intellect are always in, in, in uh, juxtaposition, in conflict with each other. <coughs> so, but, but the way that I look at it with the quadrant model is, is the passions is actually a step beyond the mind. The body's actually step beyond the mind because the mind is the first quadrant. Belief, faith, behavior, belonging. That's 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 a mind. Belief, faith, behavior, belonging. That's a gut, and that's more. And, and that's the second quadrant. And then the third quadrant is thinking, emotion, doing, dreaming. That's more the body. And then the fourth quadrant is contemplation, passion, flowing, knowing. And that's like the 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 super mind. That's beyond the body. Like any thoughts of that? You know what's the difference between belief and thinking? So belief is more in the gut, thinking's more in the brain. But but the I don't understand. No 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 no. no, no, no. no thinking's more more the body. Thinking's more the body. Thinking's more the body. Thinking, emotion, doing, dreaming is more physical. It's more physical oriented because like thoughts are, are connected to like neurons and stuff and all that. Belief is more like based around the community. It's like not so neuron based. I don't know. It just is not as physical. It, it's it, you see belief, faith, uh, sensation perception response awareness that's air and that's the mind belief faith behavior belonging that's water it's not yet physical and that's that's more like gut like belief faith behavior belonging I don't know it's it's more like community and then thinking emotion doing dreaming that's that's body that's physical doing thinking emotion emotion is all about like chemicals in the body hormones and stuff. And then contemplation, passion, flowing, knowing, that's the transcendence of the body. I get your thoughts. So what I say is that the body is actually a step beyond the mind. Because you start in the mind, and then you go to the body, but then you can transcend the body to what's beyond that. But So what I would say is like, okay, yeah, sin and not following the rules, not following the mind is actually a step in the right direction until you can transcend that. Like, any thoughts on that? But, but also, yeah, because because the mind is more good. The first quadrant is always more good. The third quadrant is always bad. And that's what, what the guy's saying. My mind's telling me no, but my body's telling me yeah. The body's bad, but bad is good. You see what I'm saying? Because bad is breaking you out of conformity. But at the same time, it also gets you in trouble. The ego gets you in trouble. And that's thinking emotion doing dreaming. Like any thoughts? Quoted Priest's Chorus from Folk Greville's drama, Mustafa, 1609. Reason and passion are placed in tragic opposition. Oh, wearisome condition of... Any thoughts? No. 
humanity, born under one law to another bound, vainly begot and yet forbidden vanity, created sick, commanded to be sound. What meaneth nature by these diverse laws? Passion and reason, self-division cause. Although the priests are supposed to be Muslims, the antithesis they formulate sharply recalls the conflict expressed by St. Paul between the law of God, which he affirms intellectually, and another law located in his body. For I delight... It does. No. ...the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Romans, chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. As we approach the Enlightenment, however, the antithesis becomes less sharp, and the passions receive more positive treatment. Descartes discussed the passions in a late essay, Les Passions de l'âme, The Passions of the Soul, 1649. The soul here is the agent of thoughts. Being immaterial, it is distinct from the body, but the part of the body with which it interacts most closely is the pineal gland, situated in the brain. Through this gland, the brain can be affected by animal spirits, i.e. very subtle parts of the blood composed of tiny and fast-moving bodies. Thoughts may be active when they are willed by the soul, or passive. Among the latter are perceptions of external objects and physical sensations, and perceptions... Hey, no. ...taking place within the soul. These last... Just don't follow all that logic. Uh, perceptions or sensations or emotions of the soul that we refer particularly to the soul itself and that are caused, sustained, and fortified by some movement of the animal spirits. Passions of the soul are potentially valuable. Unlike the Stoics, Descartes thinks they should not be suppressed but put to good use. Thus, while I know rationally that I should run... No. I mean, that's kind of like the idea of sublimated, right? Like, Freud was saying, like, okay, yeah, so Leonardo, instead of following his, like, you know, passions, he sublimated it into his artwork, like, and put it to good use, like, and he does that. No. See, that's truer. Well. See, see there's an urge. In my in, in my perspective, there's an urge to be uh, creative, and if it's not if if it's not expressed in one form, it's going to be expressed in another. Any other? No. Away from an angry bull, the passion of fear enables me to run all the faster. In another situation, the passion of courage may animate me to resist a danger. Whether fear or courage predominates in a given situation depends on the disposition of my brain. However, this too is to some extent under my control. A strong soul will form firm and definite judgments concerning the difference between good and evil, according to which it has resolved to conduct the actions of its life. Strength of soul can be cultivated and become habitual. The strong soul, however, does not overcome a passion such as fear by a mere act of will, Rather, it summons up examples and reflections that promote the countervailing passion of courage. Thus, it is important not to overcome the passions, but to manage them. Descartes concludes... Yeah, it doesn't help to repress them. You need to direct them. Yeah, it's kind of, maybe it's like that idea that Schopenhauer was talking about, like there's the will, 
there's that energy burbling inside of you and stuff, and you gotta direct it. You can't do anything about it, but you can direct it. Like, any thoughts on that? Yeah. It's kind of like the sexual yeah. energy. Like, what can you do about that? Well, I guess you can direct it. It's gonna be there. You, you, you gotta deal with that. What do you think about that? Any thoughts? It's true. It's like the Kundalini type of thing. Like, there's nothing you can do about that, but you can direct it, maybe. You know? And thus? Yeah. That the predominates in a given situation depends on the disposition of my brain. However, this too is to some extent under my control. A strong soul will form firm and definite. So, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, to some extent, it's under your control. But then another time, like, it's, it's not under your control. It's kind of like the idea of genes, too. Like, you have the dopamine. And, you know, some people say, like, they. I mean, there's been studies that, like, somebody would do, like, a mass shooting, and they discovered, oh, it's because he had, like, you know, a, a tumor in his brain on the part of his amygdala, you know? And it's like, did he really have control over that? Or, you know, who's he? Like, you know, did he have control? Well, who is he? Maybe he is that brain and the amygdala. Any, any thoughts? Uh, yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah, so, so the, the idea, though, is like, yeah, so, so who... You know, like there's these there's these studies, like okay, some some guy had like some sort of a, uh, you know, tumor in his brain or whatever, and all of a sudden he started watching a ton of porn, and he couldn't control himself, and they found out, oh, and they took out the tumor, and then it stopped, you know. So I mean, was that something overriding him, quote unquote? You know, any thoughts? Well, it sounds like it was. Sounds like it was a a biological factor that was running him. Like, like, um, um, something like I said about being, uh, vodka being toxic or alcohol being toxic, any kind of alcohol being toxic. And so biological factors can, can affect, but then also they can be overridden by culture and stuff. Like all you, what you can do is you can change the culture. And, and in this case, what you can do is you can work to cut the, cut the tumor out, you know? I mean, if, if that's necessary, you know, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. ...judgments concerning the difference between good and evil, according to which it has resolved to conduct the actions of its life. Strength of soul can be cultivated and become habitual. The strong soul, however, does not overcome a passion such as fear by a mere act of will. Rather, it summons up examples and reflections that promote the countervailing passion of courage. Thus, it is important not to overcome the passions but to manage them. Descartes concludes that the passions... Yeah, that's not, yeah, so that's like a mind trick that you can do, right? Like, instead of fear, like, you, you go into the game and in, in and then you look at the stands and you see all the people and then you imagine them in underwear. And now all of a sudden you're not afraid anymore, right? Like, something like that. Any thoughts? Yeah. Like, I've never done yeah, that before, that but... Are all good of their nature and that we are to avoid only their misuse or their excess. In the very last section, he goes even further, affirming that since it is the passions alone that make for all that is good or bad in this life, the greatest benefit of wisdom is that it teaches us to master the passions so thoroughly and to handle them so skillfully that the evils they cause are perfectly bearable and can even, all of them, be a source of joy. Yeah. Well, the fourth quadrant is contemplation, passion, flowing, knowing. And it's interesting that the passions have like a negative rap because like, you know, that's the fourth quadrant, which is a bad quadrant. And I guess, you know, even the flow could have a negative rap. And the reason why I would say that is because in the flow, you're not in control. And you don't know what's going to happen. And people don't like that. People want control. Like, any thoughts of that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. In the philosophy of Shaftesbury, at the turn of the 18th century, the affections, or passions, are all important. We are connected with other people, he says, by natural affection, parental kindness, zeal for posterity, concern for the propagation and nurture of the young, love of fellowship and company, compassion, mutual succor, and the rest of this kind, which serve the good of the species as a whole. Equally natural to us is the sense of right and wrong. The it does? No. Virtue consists in the right direction and degree of the affections. A certain just disposition or proportionable affection of a rational creature towards the moral objects of right and wrong. The role of reason is to secure a right application of the affections. Thus it enables us to avoid such aberrations as selfishness, cruelty, idolatry, or the attribution to one's gods of evil demands, or the excess of an essentially good impulse, as when religious devotion... It does. No. ...turns into fanaticism. For Shaftesbury, the passions are now the locus of the moral life. Reason simply formulates the goals to which our affections instinctively draw us, and corrects us when our affections risk getting out of hand. A similarly modest role is assigned to reason in Pope's Essay on Man, 1733-34. Humanity is actually animated... So what do you think about the idea of reason versus affections? Like, any thoughts? Affection. Uh, you, you, you were a little far away from this. What do you think about what is affections like? Any thoughts on it? Hello. Well, hello. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure what he means by affections. Uh, the things to which you are attached or drawn toward which you're drawn. Any thoughts on it? by the passions, which are different modes of self-love, and may be either good or bad, depending on their purpose. Reason restrains self-love and weighs up the different goals it might seek. Passions, though selfish, if their means be fair, list under reason and deserve her care. Even when the mind is dominated by a ruling passion, reason can rectify, not overthrow, and treats this passion more as friend than foe. Without passion, reason would be helpless. Reason provides the sailor with a chart to show... Hey, it does? No. You see, my working premise has always been that, that our passion, our, our wrestling with Shirley, Shirley there's more, is, is, is always a, a drive or a desire to realize our full potential as, as agents of creative activity. You see, that's the passion you have for the quadrant model that's your drive to be creative, to, to create something new and marvelous. Mm. So that that's what I see to be our passion, an mm. urge to be agents of creativity. Mm. Any other? No. And like I was thinking like Absalom. Absalom tried to kill his dad, and the thing about Absalom was he had he had the like he had the magnificent hair. So he was stuck in the ego. He was he wanted to be superior, and that killed him. But the idea is, yeah, some people aren't the same. But the idea behind that is like, okay, you, but the idea of you being superior, well, then you start thinking, you care too much about how you look, then you stop working so hard. Like, even now, I get too afraid to, to practice basketball around people. I, I want to get a, my own court so people can't watch me play. But it's because, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at right-handed layups. So I don't like to practice those in front of people because I don't want to look bad. But my fear of looking bad, you know, that, that makes me still look bad because I ne never will, will, will work on it. 
but that's why I want my own basketball hoop so I can practice without people looking at me. But any thoughts? Where he is going, but passion moves the ship. On life's fast ocean, diversely we sail. Reason the card, but passion is the gale. It's a short step and a short interval of time from Pope's presentation of reason as merely a guide to passions to Hume's reversal of their usual roles in his Treatise of Human Nature, 1739-40. to 40. Hume opposes the common tendency, both in philosophy and in ordinary discourse, to contrast reason with passion and to maintain that rational beings should obey the dictates of reason and keep their passions firmly in check. This, according to Hume, is a fallacy pervading most of moral philosophy, both ancient and modern. As a rejoinder, Hume undertakes to show, first, that reason alone can never be a motive to any action of the will, and secondly, that it can never oppose passion in the direction of the will. Reason can direct our judgment by telling us what... It does. No. ...causes will produce desirable or undesirable effects, but what makes us perform or avoid any action is the prospect of pleasure or pain to be derived from it. And though reason can tell us what may happen, it cannot directly make us do anything. We do things because we want to. And it is our passions, not our reason, that makes us want to. Indecision is not a conflict between passion and reason, but a conflict between two opposing desires. Therefore, it is passion, not reason, that motivates our actions. Reason is, and ought only to be, the slave of the passions. This claim, one might rejoin... It does? No. It's interesting, you kind of like do it, do it the opposite way. And that's what I would say too. Like, you know, pe people look at the passions as worse, but the passions is actually, there's contemplation and then there's passion. Passion is beyond the mind. And it's the idea you want to transcend the mind. Like the mind's good, but then you transcend it to the passion, then to flowing, and then to knowing. Now, which one is better? I don't know. Like, make, which one's a slave of who? Well, the passions can, it's, it's a question. There's, there's two different ways of doing it. It's a duality. Do you want to be contemplative or do you want to be passionate? It, it's a two different, it's Vishnu worship versus Shiva worship. Which one's better? Not neither one necessarily. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, that's good. So striking because Hume is stretching the meaning of the word passions. Although it suggests primarily violent passions, such as greed, ambition, or lust, Hume is extending it to include even the mildest form of desire. On his showing, it is passion, not reason, that makes one go about one's daily business. But passion would seem an absurdly grandiose word for such mild and ordinary motivations. Even allowing for dramatic overstatement, however, Hume has sharply adjusted the familiar understanding of human nature. His originality can be appreciated by a comparison with a passage from Kant's essay, Forsuch über die Krankheiten des Kopfes, Essay on the Maladies of the Head, 1764, written before he had read Hume. Kant acknowledges that the will is motivated by passions, that the intellect serves to identify goals and helps towards their attainment, and that passions can easily get out of hand. So... Somebody who fails to control his passions is a fool, tour, whether besotted by love or carried away by milder obsessions with building, collecting pictures, or acquiring books. A wise man is free from passions. Though Kant admits that, as the passions are so all-pervasive, we may have to search for this wise man in the moon. Kant does. No. ...laws the power of the passions, which Hume provocatively celebrates. As yet few people agreed with the primacy Hume gave to the passions. The article Passions in the Encyclopédie 
acknowledges that the passions are essential to human life. It is the passions that set everything in motion, that bring the picture of this universe to life, and, so to speak, give the life and soul to its various parts. The author nevertheless deplores the propensity of the passions to escape from control, and the difficulty that reason experiences in maintaining a balance among them. The article ends by adopting Pope's image of a sea voyage, in which passion too often blows the ship off course. Sad picture of the state to which man is reduced by his passions, surrounded by... It does. ...reefs, driven by a thousand contrary winds. Could he ever reach the port? Yes, he can. For him, there is a reason that moderates the passion, vigilance that sustains him, a prudence of which he is capable. This, however, was already a backward-looking view. The Enlightenment, the so-called age of reason, would increasingly rely on the guidance of the emotions. Reason untempered by feeling was felt to be inadequate, even dangerous. Virtue born of reason alone, said Pietro Ferri, makes us just, faithful, discreet, and circumspect. But that which springs from sentiment makes us generous, affectionate, benevolent. The first tends to remove evil from our actions. The second urges us with positive actions towards the good. By 1795... It does. No. Friedrich Schiller could condemn an enlightenment that applied only to the intellect without also educating the emotions. That enlightenment of the mind, which is the not altogether groundless boast of our refined classes, has had on the whole so little of an ennobling influence on feeling and character that it has tended rather to bolster our depravity by providing it with the support of precepts. It does. That is true, it's not the full, like, you could reason anything, like, oh, yeah, well, it's okay to have sex with that guy's wife because, you know, uh, we're just animals and, and we're just trying to spread our genes. Any thoughts? Surrender leadership. Accordingly, by the late 18th century, the Enlightenment was increasingly dominated by emotion rather than reason, in ways to be explored in detail in the chapters that follow. The concept of sympathy as the glue holding society together would be explored by philosophers from Shaftesbury to Adam Smith. Sensibility and emotional participation in other people's experiences would be promoted by the great novels of the mid-century, Richardson's Clarissa, Rousseau's La Nouvelle Eloise, Goethe's Werther, and help to motivate such social reforms as the campaign against slavery. The indulgence of individual appetites, which powered a commercial economy, but was often stigmatized as wanton luxury, would become a central theme in debates about society. And in aesthetics, the concept of the sublime, in which emotion and reason were imagined as interacting, would be a central topic from Burke's A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, 1757, to Kant's Critique of Judgment, 1790. Interpreting the Enlightenment. It does. No. How, in the early 21st century, should we define and interpret the Enlightenment? The best starting point remains the... Any thoughts of the idea of the Enlightenment? All right, let's do a little bit of that uh, book, The Bible and the Psyche, right? Okay. Tell me if it's too fast. Church and country. One who succeeds in dissolving this participational mystique becomes, like Abraham, a great nation. To achieve the state of conscious individuate, to, to achieve the state of the conscious individual, being is like it. I'm yeah, sure I, 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 that I can't quite change. get that. All right, tell me if this is too fast, right? the page 
to achieve the state of conscious individual being is like the birth of a new world. Yeah, that's Young hints at these mystery. I'm sorry. Young hints at this mistress. Young hints. At he keeps on like uh, messing up when he's reading. You know, he does. No. I think it's because he keeps on looking up at the camera. This mysterious idea when he oh, says, "quote It is quite possible that we contain whole peoples maybe. in our souls, worlds where we can be as infinitely great as we are infinitely small externally, so great that the history of the redemption of a whole nation or a whole universe might take place within us." The experience of being called is a crucial feature of individuation. It doesn't. No. I like that idea. Like the, the salvation of the whole universe takes place within us. Like the, the, that mystical connection. Like any thoughts of that? Yeah. Like I, people say that sounds arrogant, but I don't. I, it might be true. You know, you you change. Everything's connected. Everything changes. Any thoughts of that? It brings an irrefutable awareness of the transpersonal center of the psyche, the self, and its imperatives. Jung describes the psychological significance of vocation in his essay, The Development of Personality. And that's in Collected Works 7, paragraphs 299 and following. Quote, what is it, in the end, that induces a man to go his own way and to rise out of unconscious identity with a mass as out of a swathing mist? It is what is commonly called vocation, an irrational factor that destines a man to emancipate himself from the herd and from its well-worn paths. True personality is always a vocation and puts its trust in it as in God. Vocation acts like a law of God from which there is no escape. The clearest examples of this are to be found in the avowals of the Old Testament prophets. Only the man who can consciously assent to the power of the inner voice becomes a personality. But if he... Like, what do you think about that? The, the idea of vocation and the power of the inner voice. How can you thoughts of that? Inner voice or your higher dimension that goes beyond the intellect. It makes me think of the idea of destiny, too. Like, people are destined to do something, and the voice is telling them where to go and everything. You know, any thoughts? Well, again, I'm always hesitant about being destined but you know I, I would say that in the quadrant matrix is very likely you know everything is connected even the names everything and yeah there might be some aspects of like free will or, but, but the idea like maybe everything is destined and, and you think you know, it does that you know, people have to fulfill the it space people have to fulfill the space within the musical composition which is already written like it does so it comes but if he so comes to it he will be swept away by the blind flux of psychic events and destroyed. That is the great liberating thing about any genuine personality. He voluntarily sacrifices himself to his vocation and consciously translates into his own individual reality what would only lead to ruin if it were lived unconsciously by the group. It does. Inner voice is a Lucifer in the strictest and most unequivocal, unequivocal sense of the word, and it faces people with ultimate moral decisions, without which they can never achieve full consciousness and become personalities. The highest and the lowest, the best and the vilest, the truest and the most deceptive things are often blended together in the inner voice in the most baffling way, thus opening in us an abyss of confusion, falsehood, and despair." Unquote. The ambiguous and even dangerous aspect of vocation is often not visible in canonical material, which has been refined over many centuries for theological purposes. 
These missing elements are sometimes found in the legends that accumulate around the sacred figures. According to legend, the immediate reason for Abraham's move to Canaan was that King Nimrod was seeking to kill him. The king had had a dream, which his wise men interpreted to mean that he would lose his life at the hands of a descendant of Abraham. The psychological implication is clear. To honor the inner authority, the source of the call, may require the denial of external and projected authority, thus exposing oneself to dangerous reprisal. In hey, thus? The legend of Abraham. Yeah, like you follow the inner authority, you don't listen to extra. I'm, I think of that like the quadrant. Like, you didn't believe it, but I still followed the inner, you know, as opposed to the external. And I had to go through. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's good. It's call. It, in you the had, legend, you Abraham's had to develop call. your own feathers rather than fly on somebody else's. Moses mm -hmm. him to the same danger the newborn Moses and Christ experience the covenant. Abraham's next encounter with Yahweh is described in Genesis 15. Quote, it happened sometime later that the word of Yahweh was spoken to Abram in a vision. Have no fear, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. My Lord Yahweh, Abraham replied, what do you intend to give me? I go childless. Then Abram said, see, you have given me no descendants. Some man of my household will be my heir. And then this word of Yahweh was spoken to him. Quote, he shall not be your heir. Your heir shall be of your own flesh and blood. And quote. Then taking him outside, he said, quote, look. Hey, thus? No. To the heaven and count the stars if you can. Such will be your descendants, he told him. Abraham put his faith in Yahweh, who counted this as making him justified. I'm sorry, the sun is in my eyes. I've got to stop this. Earn free crypto just by learning about it. Coinbase Earn is the fast, easy, and rewarding way to. Sorry. We were doing a private conversation earlier and just like lost track of what the sun was doing. I apologize for this. Okay, so we're in the middle of this, but passage, I apologize. So Yahweh announces himself. I am Yahweh, he said to him, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to make your heir to, to make you heir to this land. My Lord Yahweh, Abram said, replied, How am I to know that I shall inherit it? But the thing was like I tried to take your feathers as much as I could. I tried to, you know, utilize my own feathers, but also tried to, you know, absorb as much of your feathers as I could, you know. And also assimilate, and, and I think probably Abraham did the same type of thing. Like, he probably took from the pagan stuff, but also developed, you know, his true insights from the inner calling, inner voice that was bringing him to the deeper truth, like any does. Yeah, well, that, that's the way it works. We always hitchhike on somebody else's feathers temporarily, and then we uh, uh, appropriate them and do our own creative uh, uh, extension of what we borrow from others. That's, that's the Sherpa and the exposure. Get me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these. He brought them. He brought him all these. Cut them in half and put half on one side and half facing it on the other. But the birds he did not cut in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and terror seized him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your descendants will be exiles in a land not their own, where they will be slaves and oppressed. Hey, does? No. 
400 years, but I will pass judgment also on the nation that enslaves them, and after that they will leave with many possessions. For your part, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation they will come back here, for the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet ended. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, there appeared a smoking furnace and a firebrand that went be between the halves. That day Yahweh made a covenant with Abram in these terms, quote, to your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the... Any thoughts? No. What do you think is the significance of him going through the animals? Any thoughts? The cut animals. No. To the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Carmanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Ephraim, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, verses 1 through 21. That's from Genesis 15, unquote. It's time to reconnect with travel. Kayak searches hundreds of travel sites and shows you which hotels and vacation rentals have free cancellation, so you can... The covenant here described between Yahweh on one hand and Abraham and his de descendants on the other is the core content of the Old Testament. Abraham is told that the fruits of his life will be countless and of the nature of stars. Beyond the literal meaning, this passage refers to the psychic products of his life, which are to be infinite and sidereal. This is an allusion to the transpersonal effects of individuation. There is reason to believe that the psychic accomplishments of the individual are transferred to the archetypal realm and become permanent contents of the collective psyche. This seems to be what is promised to Abraham. He is to be father of star stuff. Jung tells us, that, Jung tells us quote, the decisive question for a man is he related to something infinite or not? In the final analysis, we count for something only because of the essential we embody, unquote. This remark has two aspects. On the one hand, the... No. ...counts for something if it has made a connection with the ever-living eternal. On the other hand, it counts for something if it has taken on eternal qualities. Did you look at the emails yet or no? Yeah, didn't you check your email? Oh, you sent them? Oh, yeah, at 8.08 a.m.? Yeah. You only sent one, though, huh? No, I sent several. Um, let's see. Yeah, so, so the question is, why did I only get one? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Let me see if I can figure this out. Yeah, there were several books. Oh, okay. You said you sent some to Quadrum Form and you sent some to Quadrum All Reality, huh? Well, I just I just reply. I, I Oh yeah, okay. so so, so I you, you replied okay, I, I, I see it. You you replied around eight o'clock? Yeah. Eight twenty? Alright, cool. All right. Okay, that's enough for today. All right. Oh, also, hopefully, tell me if you want to study, you know, twice or anything, you know. But uh. okay. I think I'm. Yeah. All right.